Good morning. This morning, we're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 58. We're going to read from verse 1 down to the beginning of verse 9. I'll give you a second to look for that. Again, it's Isaiah chapter 58, verses 1 to the beginning of 9. Beginning in verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? It's not this fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. This is the reading of the word. Thank you, John. Then you will ask, you will cry, and God will say, here I am. If you're a guest today or just stepping back in from COVID world, um, we have been thinking, we've been in Isaiah and we've been thinking about revival and about awakening and about what that means. Last Sunday, we kind of started into that. Today, we're going to think about it more and it really is going to take us into the end of the book, really, uh, and sort of an unexpected thing that Isaiah is talking about a worldwide awakening, uh, and it's really beautiful. So what is revival? Because we have different conceptions of revival uh, depending on how we were brought up, where we're from, what that means, our exposure to Christianity. I think one of the best answers to that question is, is this, revival is when God comes down and makes himself overwhelmingly real to us, unmistakably present. Revival is awakening to the presence of God, the immediacy of God, the nearness of God, the kiss of God, the affection of God, the warmth of God. You kind of awakening personally or as a church or as a student group or, or 
as a person who's never met Christ. This is what we're talking about. Now, we cannot force God's hand. We can never force God's hand. The Bible says our God sits in the heavens. He's enthroned in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. We can't manipulate God. We can't coerce God. That doesn't mean we do nothing. We do have a responsibility, and our responsibility in inviting awakening is to, as Isaiah has said, prepare the way of the Lord by removing obstacles, removing uh, things that are keeping us from returning to God. So we present ourselves and we present our church as ready for a, a fresh wind of God's awakening. And that's where Isaiah is taking us today. Now let me give you a little bit of context for those of you who maybe have not been through the book of Isaiah before. Uh, it's a huge book. Anybody felt overwhelmed reading the 66 chapters of Isaiah? It's massive, right? I, like every week, I'm like, what are, how do we do this? Let me give you a quick survey to give you some context. Chapters 1 through 39, really the first two-thirds of the book, Isaiah is speaking against confronting his own generation a people craving worldly security and really unwilling to trust God as their ultimate king. Chapters 40 through 55, Isaiah looks beyond his own generation and speaks to the Jewish people in exile who are longing to return from Babylon. And they're longing for hope. They're longing for a deliverer. And who do we meet in that section? The suffering servant, the deliverer of God, the savior of God's people. And he not only bears their griefs and their sorrows, but he even bears their iniquity. So we learn that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's a lot of hope in that section, in the suffering servant. And then in chapters 56 through 66, the last kind of quarter of the book, I divided it in thirds now, but I'm in quarters. I just, you know, you do the math, brother. Um, but the last 56 to 66 um, Isaiah is, is speaking to the returned exiles and we really think he has in view all future believers, all future generations. And you can mark that, see that. Let me just give you a little marker as you're studying the Bible. Go back to 56.1 and you can see that and you can see part of why Bible students say this is the third and final section. In 56.1, thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come. For this reason and, 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 and several others, we think this is a marker for the final section. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. So we live today knowing that Christ has fulfilled all the suffering servant passages of Isaiah, we know on this side of his coming, his living, his dying, and his rising that he is the suffering servant. He is the messianic hope. He's the one who fulfilled all that. We live between that and his final coming, his second coming, his ultimate return where he brings all of his glory and brings an overwhelming awakening to the whole world in delightful submission to his reign as Christ the King. And that's what we're looking forward to. We know that Jesus is the Christ because among many other reasons, he took this book, and just fast forward a couple chapters to 61, he took this scroll of Isaiah, the book we're studying, 
And he read, it wasn't marked as chapter 61 back then, but it was the scroll of Isaiah, and he read from what we mark as 61.1. And here's what Jesus did. He walks into a synagogue in Nazareth, and he picks up the scroll of Isaiah, and he says this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, and he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And, and, and he didn't just sit, he didn't just close the scroll and sit down in the synagogue to see what people would say. He put the scroll away, and do you remember what he said? This is fulfilled right here, right now. Jesus, the Son of God, says, Isaiah was writing about me. I have come to set free the captives. I've come to uh, bring good, good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to open the prison to those who are bound. This is, this is Jesus' ministry. This is his life and his death and his resurrection. And he's saying, look, I am here to fulfill all that Isaiah was talking about. Now, if we are followers of Jesus... If that's what he was about, what should we be doing? What should his followers be doing? God is calling us through Isaiah the prophet, through his word. God is inviting us and he's calling us as Cape Spring Baptist Church on this corner, in this zip code, at this junction, right, of life. He's calling us to follow Jesus into binding up the brokenhearted, serving this community, this corner, to be the most, listen, this church ought to be the most compassionate force for justice and evangelism and blessing and everything you could do to make this world a better place. Like right here, it ought to start with us if we're following Jesus into his ministry. I thought you were gonna talk about revival, so now you're asking me to go serve people. What does this have to do with revival? What does helping people flourish have to do with revival? Here, it has everything to do with it. Here's what I mean. Here's what Isaiah is teaching me. God will only meet us. Are you with me? God will only meet us and awaken us. He will only meet us and awaken us and revive us as we truly humble ourselves and acknowledge our need and willingly spend ourselves on the needs of others. To the degree that we go to that intersection of human need, we will meet God and he will awaken. God some of, some of you want so badly to know the realness of God. Like you want to believe in God. You know you should believe in God. You want him to be real. And you're like, what do I need to do to make that happen? What Isaiah is saying, here's what you do. You meet the God of the universe at the intersection of human need. And when you do that, God will make himself overwhelmingly real to you when you seek to meet the need of another person as your needs were met in Christ. It's an incredible, simple, powerful message. I mean, this is what Jesus was talking about. Like, Jesus went around saying to everybody, if you want to understand Christianity, if you want to understand the whole Old Testament even, if you want to understand what I'm about, 
You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and then love, and what? What's the second part? And love your neighbor as yourself. When you, when you do that, when you live at that intersection on the boundary of brokenness and need, God promises to awaken the selfish heart that lives in here. Two things need to happen for this awakening to really occur. Let's talk about the negative and then the positive. The negative is empty religion needs to be exposed. And that's what Isaiah does first in verses one through five. Isaiah is interested in exposing empty religion for what it is. Start with me back in 58, verse one. Listen to this. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, the house of Jacob, their sins. God wants Isaiah to bring out the big guns of prophetic confrontation. He does not want him to soft sell it. He doesn't want him to dance around with this. Look at the imagery. Uh, Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Now, how many of you ever had a trumpet player in your house and they played the trumpet inside the house with the windows closed. Anybody ever happen to anybody? Man, it is one of the loudest instruments I've ever heard in my life. I mean, he's like, you know, do, 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 like kill it, loud, like Isaiah, I want you to blast the trumpet and say to my people, come back to me. Come back to me. Now, if, you, if we hadn't already read verse 2, and you heard this announcement in verse 1, a trumpet announcement against sin, you would say to yourself, man, they must have been real. They, murder, adultery, stealing, like just start rolling through the Ten Commandments. They must be trashing the Ten Commandments. If God is saying this, they must be trashing the Ten Commandments. That's not what you find in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They delight to draw near to God. Now, if you moved from Roanoke and went to another city and started looking for a new church, and you found a church that did these three things, promoted daily seeking God, delighting to know my ways, drawing near to God, you would join that church, and so would I. But God might not. It's entirely possible for religious people to do things with little self-awareness, with no true humility, with no genuine faith. Religious exercises, kind of like religious exercises designed to manipulate God. We get what we want from God. And we know that because Verse 3 explains what they were actually thinking. Look at verse 3 with me. What are they actually thinking? So why have we fasted? We thought we were supposed to fast. Why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it, God? Now the word for humbled here might also be translated afflicted. It's a little more aggressive. 
uh, afflicted ourselves. We've, we've actually taken our sin very seriously. And doesn't that, sound like, doesn't that sound like God should honor that? And yet God is still off at a distance. Still withholding himself. Why? Because God knows the heart of every single person. We don't know the hearts, but God does. He knows their motivation. And when they ask why, if you're uh, like, if you make notes and you're circling things, circle the question why, right? Why? Uh, twice in verse three. When they ask why, this is not an open-hearted question willing to receive instruction. Are you with me? This is not an open-hearted why willing to receive instruction. It's a presumptuous why. It's why haven't you done this for us? It's an obligatory why. It's the why of perfunctory religion. It's the why of how come, look, it's their very sincere, it's their very sincerity that explains their frustration. They sincerely believe that they could obligate God through fasting and prayer and self-deprivation. And when that stuff doesn't work, they resent God. Have you ever resented God for your religious exercises that didn't get what you want? You, you were trying to leverage God? Where did they go wrong? Look back at verse two. Just a couple of words there, as if they were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They seek me daily, they delight to know my ways, as if as if, like, as it, so th what they're doing is they're role-playing righteousness. It's fake righteousness. It's hypocrisy. As if they loved righteousness. As if they delighted in God. As if they embraced true humility. As if they really loved their neighbor. But God discerns their hypocrisy and their manipulation. So going on in verse 3, we read, they say, why? God answers verse 3, behold. Look at verse 3. In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You're not even feeding your own workers. You've, you're you're going to break your fast, and you're going to have plenty of food, but you don't even care about the people who work for you. There's injustice all around you. You oppress them, and you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. You know, if you're not careful, the spiritual discipline of fasting, it'll get the best of you. you it'll make you hangry, like... You can get really hangry. You get really hangry when you're fasting. You know why that is? And, and fasting, is a, is a, fasting is a really good spiritual exercise. The reason is because God is, is, is working to see what you hunger the most for. And so... This is not a lesson against fasting. Some of you might read that. This is a lesson against, no, this is not a lesson against fasting. It's not a lesson against Sabbath keeping. It's not a lesson against church attendance. It's not a lesson against giving. It's not a lesson against any of the great classic spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith, which we should practice. And they are, I think, material to authentic Christianity. But only if they are infused with true humility and faith 
and only if the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of the disciplines. Only if the Spirit of Christ is generating, motivating, fueling the Spirit of the disciplines. Only when you authenticate your love for God by loving someone else who is in need. In other words, you can't fast or observe the Sabbath or come to worship and ignore the people around you. Like that was Jesus' whole point when he starts talking about this. You can just imagine a self-righteous Pharisee on the Sabbath or fasting or in a worship context and people in need right next to him. Empty religion will never give you eyes to see the people around you and their need. But pure religion, uh, James the Apostle says, pure religion that is undefiled before God the Father is, is to visit orphans and widows in their suffering and in their affliction, to care for people who've experienced crisis and have deep need, and you're their neighbors, Right? So here in verses, we go to point number two, here in verses six through 12, now we see pure, beautiful, life-giving religion. We see life-giving religion. Uh, we see a, a way of life that gives itself away rather than trying to manipulate God for our own selfish purposes. Let me pick up in verse six. This is the, is not this the fast that I choose, this is God speaking. This is the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every single yoke. The yoke was that big beam of wood you'd put across the back, the shoulders of you know, two big sturdy ox or two animals that you'd want to try to get to work for you, but you'd have to bring them under it to get what you want out of them. And this is a beautiful, uh, 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 or a vivid rather, it's a vivid image about the beauty of the freedom that Christ brings and God wants to bring through his people. Because he says we're supposed to, we're supposed to help the people that are around us unstrap the yoke and get it off of their shoulders. See, in the world, in this world that we live in, people are often treated as animals, but they shouldn't be. And whether it's racism or poverty or domestic abuse or just something that happened to your neighbors and put them in a really difficult situation that was not their fault at all, whatever the case is, people should not People should be dignified, not undignified. People should be treated as human beings, not animals. And so it's our call to help take the yoke off of them and free them, right? Like if Jesus is all about preaching freedom to those who are captive and taking the yoke off of people, that's what we want to be about. Like this church should be known. This church should not be known. Let me just say it positively. This church should be known. Like, hey, I went to that church. You know what they did? They, they loosened up that strap. And I can breathe again. I feel the yoke coming off. I met some of the people down at that church, and 
I met somebody who kind of encouraged me to take this massive yoke. And uh, when he found out about this massive, massive yoke that I've been under oppression because I've been addicted to alcohol, and he befriended me, and he walked with me, and he got me into a program. And, and he's one of the main reasons that, that, he's one of the main ways that God took that big heavy yoke and just sort of cracked it across his knee. And I have experienced freedom because I met Christ through these people. That'd be amazing. That's what you're looking for, by the way. You're looking for purpose as a disciple. That's what you're looking for, pure religion. Verse 7 says this. Isn't it to share your bread? This is, this is, what I, this is the fast that I choose, says God. This is pure, beautiful, life-giving religion. Share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into you. He's not saying bring a criminal into your house who's going to threaten your life, but he is saying bring the homeless poor into your house. Care for him. See the naked. Cover them. This is really interesting. Don't hide yourself from your own flesh. Now mark this phrase. Uh, if you have the, um, you might have a couple of translations. Some of your translations would say, your own flesh and blood. So take a look at that. Does it have flesh and blood? Um, flesh and blood may not be the best rendering. We think because of the way the Hebrews constructed it, just it really is just flesh here, and that he's talking about all of humanity as your own family, not your blood kin, not your blood relatives. So some translations uh, lean in that direction, like your your own family, your own flesh and blood, that's how we would say it. But I think the better rendering is left at flesh to make the point that every single person in this world, and we, we believe this by the way, every single person in this world is an image bearer who should be dignified as a human being by your interest, your attention, your help, your care, even to the point of being, hey, Pastor Chip said it last week so well. When our community hurts, we hurt. I can't just walk by the neighbor who's hungry. I can't just walk by the person in need. Now here's the deal. This is a church full of blessed souls. Spiritually, materially. You have to ask yourself this question. Why has God shown me favor? Why has he shown us such favor? And I don't just mean materially. I mean spiritually, holistically. Why has he smiled on your life? It can't just be for us. Like the whole tenor of Scripture is, it's not just for us. We've been blessed so that we might be a blessing to the nations. Lord, make your face to shine upon us. Is this 67? Is this Psalm 67? Let your face shine upon us. Make us a blessing to the nations. God, you have shown us favor. Favor for a reason. Like, just mark that in your head here. This is favor for a reason. And the reason is that other people might experience, no, awakening. For a long time, churches have been out of balance on one hand or the other. So the great error of fundamentalism has been to let someone else feed the poor. And the great error of theological liberalism has been to let someone else speak the truth. 
But Isaiah is calling, guess what Isaiah is calling us to do as this church? He's calling us to do both. He's calling us to do both. He's calling us to say, we are going to bless, we are going to help. Look, you can't, you can't show up to somebody who hasn't had a meal in six weeks and say, Jesus is the bread of life. You feed him first, right? Then you say while you're feeding them, let's thank God because Jesus is the bread of life. That's what God is calling us to do. We're just not in the mix. For the most part, we're just not rolling up our sleeves and getting into the brokenness that is around us. And as we rediscover church on the other side of COVID, as we rediscover church in this season of life, as we ask for God to awaken us to the needs in our neighborhood, to give us eyes to see, this is not what we think. This is not what we think the neighborhood needs. This is not what we think that family needs. This is what they need. Like, God, give us eyes to see where they are, to see their brokenness, not to judge them in their brokenness, but to love them and see them. So Isaiah is saying the secret to awakening is to care deeply about your neighbor. That's why verse 8 says, then shall your light shine. Then, then I'm going to answer. Then I will, then you will call and, and the Lord will answer. You will cry out to God and he'll say, here I am. God is meeting people at the intersection, at the boundary of need, at the boundary of brokenness, at the boundary of helplessness. And if you show up there as anything but a helpless person who's also in need, it short circuits the whole deal. This happened for years with missionaries, white missionaries going in to solve the problem, right? We don't want to be that. We want pure, undefiled, beautiful, life-giving, holistic, flourishing, like let's ask God for an awakening. The essence of authentic Christianity always moves us outside of ourselves. Do you believe that? I think that's really, I think that's like really true. The essence of authentic Christianity always moves me outside of myself in two ways. One, toward God-centered worship with worship and praise, unhindered, free, open Bible, open heart, open hands, like it moves me to God, and also it moves me somewhere else. Where? To the person outside of me who needs help. To my neighbor, to someone who's been hurt, You know, the deceptive thing about living on this corner here in this zip code is that all the people in all the nice houses who aren't here with us this morning back here up on this hill and all the people in all the nice houses on the other side here in Penn Forest, like they're all nice houses. The deceptive thing about it is to think there's not brokenness there right now. Right now. And they are our neighbors. And we want awakening. I'm, we're not praying for awakening at the church, like awakening in the pews, at this, in this. We're, playing, we're praying for an awakening in people. We're praying for an awakening in the hearts and souls of people. How do we get back? Okay, so, I, so what I've laid out is empty religion beautiful, life-giving, pure religion that sets people free and 
feeds them and cares for them and blesses them and shows them hospitality. God will answer, verses 8 and 9, if you pour yourself out, verse 10. By the way, I didn't think about this till just now, but I'm going to say at verse 10, this is what Jesus did. Read verse 10 with Jesus in mind. Jesus poured himself out. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself nothing, poured himself out, emptied himself, and, and, and came in humility, in humanity, and died on a cross. Poured himself out. Philippians 2, like verse 10 ties directly to Philippians 2. All right, now, okay, how do we get back? Verses 13 and 14 instruct us in how to pray for awakening, how to return to God. If you will turn back from the Sabbath, from your way of doing this, from your pleasure on my holy day, you took, well, you took what was good and beautiful and you, you twisted it and made it something you could try to obligate me with or coerce me. I don't operate that way. I'm God. I don't operate that way. So return to me. Turn back. And call the Sabbath a delight. Love me, God says. Then, verse 14, you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. That is just a beautiful thought. If you will delight in me, verse 14, if you will turn, there's two elements to this. Or it, it, you always find this in the Bible. There's repentance and faith. There's turning and there's to God part. If you will delight in me, so if you'll turn away from all this empty religion and you'll turn to me and delight in me, it'll be like surfing across the mountains over the whole world. What a beautiful image. Like you will ride in a delight like you were made for something beautiful, something more. If you find your delight in God. I'll make you ride on the heights of the earth. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. How do we get back? We, we get back through repentance and faith, through turning away from our sin, ourselves, our own limited perspective, and throwing ourselves in a delightful, free, wholehearted, I'm Jesus, I'm yours. Nothing else competes with you anymore, Jesus. That's how we get back. And God will honor that. And that's what Isaiah is calling his people to do. Before we receive communion, I want to um, ask you to pray with me. In fact, I want to ask you to pray instead of me because I've been talking for a half an hour or more and I would love for you to pray. Uh, I've got to watch my, my social distance. So I'm not going to get too close but pretend like I'm still walking down the aisle, <laughs> getting in your business. Will you pray for us? So here's what we're gonna do. 
in a moment, we're gonna pray, and sometimes we'll, we'll pray as, as, as a congregation, and you just voice prayers for us as a people. Just a sentence or two, not long prayers. You don't have to stand up. This is not an intimidating moment. Think about just a few of us hanging out as a family. We're just gonna voice some prayers that God would awaken us. He would awaken us and that he would do that at the intersection of human need, that we would be willing to meet people in their brokenness and ask God to awaken us as a church family. We're gonna pray that way in just a second and I'm gonna ask you to do that. Before we do, let me say a word about communion. The Lord's table, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, the bread and the cup, they are signs of faith. So we uh, believe and we teach that first we, we offer Christ to you. So before you would receive communion, you would wanna receive Christ as a believer. And after you receive Christ as a believer, we would want to encourage you to confess your faith through baptism. Um, if you've confessed your faith through baptism elsewhere, it doesn't have to be in this church, but if you confessed your faith consciously, you know, active faith through baptism, then we welcome you to receive communion with us. If you've not yet met Christ or um, done that, baptized publicly so that the world would know your Christ's, just, just watch. We would just invite you to watch and, and listen and, and, and consider faith in Christ. Or even better yet, like just pray, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior today and I wanna invite you into my life. I want you to awaken my soul. And if you do that today, during this time, just kind of wave to one of us and we'll come and meet you and talk with you and uh, even do that during wh while others are receiving the elements. And then we'll go out the sides and just kind of watch for the flow of this if this is your first time with us. You just kind of go out the side and then follow the group and come back in the middle. And we'll take our time, we're not in a rush. And we're gonna ask the Lord to bless this time. So would you be willing, a couple of you, several of you, just voice a prayer or two and ask God to awaken us as individuals and as a people. Could I ask a few of you, I'll close this in just a moment. A few of you, please don't be intimidated by the size of the group, just where you're seated, just offer a prayer. It doesn't need to be loud or long, just feel free to pray. Let's pray together. Now Lord, as we seal our commitment to you again by receiving communion with one another. Would you energize compassion? Would you interrupt our schedules? Would you help us be willing to get out our wallets and our pocketbooks and to care? To put our treasure where our heart is. God, do something for us that we just cannot do for ourselves. Awaken us, we pray today in Christ's name.